To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. Eye on the ball, people. Eye on the labor market ball. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is the 29th of January today. Good as always to have you along, everybody. Happy Monday while I'm at it. Never fear, though, for Friday we'll be here soon enough. Along with it, an update on the state of the labor market in this economy. We call it the January Jobs Report around here. The experts at the Bureau of Labor Statistics call it the Employment Situation Summary, which is funny because there's nothing really very summary about it. We'll get data on the number of people working, their wages, how many hours people worked, and in which sectors, which for us right now is going to be office work and the web of jobs that support that. HR recruiters, security guards, the people who water the office plants. And we're looking at that because changes in those kinds of jobs are signs of bigger things going on in this labor market. Marketplace Sabri Benishor kicks off Jobs Week for us. You know all those office plants in the office? Well, somebody's taking care of them. And in the past, it might have been Chelsea Gregory. I'm the CEO of the Plant Doctors. Five years ago, her Portland, Oregon company was installing monsteras at offices, taking care of pothoses at offices, refreshing fiddly figs at offices. And then the pandemic hit and there were almost no offices for a while. We saw a huge uptick in residential clients. So the plant doctor's company still happily does its plant thing just at people's home offices and homes. As office offices started to come back, the office business did too, kind of. Places would rehire us, but all of their plants had died. <laughs> but then a lot of places have seen, you know, employees just not wanting to come back into the office. And so some of those accounts we've moved on from. Jobs in this kind of work, the work that makes offices and buildings run, makes them nice, those jobs grew about 2.6% last year. It's growth, but it's not huge growth. And exactly as Gregory experienced, it reflects a rough ride back to the office. The office market in commercial real estate is still suffering. Thomas LaSalvia is with Moody CRE. In the fourth quarter, we saw the vacancy rate break its previous record. So in our data, we're sitting at 19.6%. The reality is we still do not know where the remote work, hybrid work, office work balance is going to settle. And so the number of people who will be working in the office ecosystem is also up in the air. Michael Montgomery is with S&P Market Intelligence. They'll keep going up for a while. Because you're still pulling people back to the office. It's just you won't need anywhere near the number of people that you had in 2019. 
But the slow and messy return to the office has actually created a bonanza for other office jobs. Human resources consultants, for example, increased 18 percent after the pandemic and are still very high, says Julia Pollack, chief economist at ZipRecruiter. Managing office workers and how they do their work and how they're compensated and how they're incentivized, that has become more challenging now that they're no longer in the physical office. So the web of office jobs behind office jobs is still being rebuilt. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore for Marketplace. Wall Street today and for the rest of the week, really, traders are looking at three things. Earnings from big tech companies, rather, coming out this week. What Jay Powell has to say after the Fed meeting wraps up on Wednesday and the aforementioned employment situation summary, which comes on Friday. We will have all the details of today's action when we do the numbers. We seem to have come to the end of the line for the Chinese firm Evergrande, the most indebted real estate development company on the planet. A bankruptcy court in Hong Kong has ordered the company be liquidated, seeing as how it's got $300 billion in total liabilities, substantially less than that in total assets, most of which are not yet finished projects in China. The company has been trying to restructure for more than two years. It has stopped paying on its bonds as well. And while there will be some legal wrangling between the Hong Kong court and the mainland Chinese system, this does appear to be it. But unwinding the company and selling off those assets is going to be complicated with complicated economic after effects, as Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman explains. This massive bankruptcy could be a new drag on China's economy and financial markets, which are already in the doldrums, says Ishwar Prasad at Cornell University. This is one of the biggest dominoes in the Chinese property market, and it's taken a long time to fully fall to the ground. Real estate is one of the main ways Chinese families invest their wealth. So one of the most surprising things about this bankruptcy, says Prasad, is that the government isn't intervening to keep Evergrande afloat. The government is not going to ride to the rescue. There are people who are going to lose money. Investors are likely in for a rough ride, says Nicholas Lardy at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. I don't think they're going to recover very much. It's going to be pennies on the dollar. Still, Lardy says the Chinese government probably will try to keep some money flowing to get stalled housing projects completed. So this was a political problem uh, for the government. People took out mortgages to buy these properties, and so they were paying on their mortgages. For a while, it looked like they'd never get the, the units that they bought. Meanwhile, foreign creditors may find themselves behind Chinese ones in the line for repayment, says Ishwar Prasad. Given how nervous... Both domestic and foreign investors are at the moment. There might be a surge of capital leaving the country. Um, There might be some depreciation pressures on the currency. Not great for China, obviously, but not necessarily bad for China's rivals either, says Chris Jackson at polling firm Ipsos. You look at places like Malaysia, a lot of times they're benefiting when China's going through some some challenges because they're seen as sort of a, a safer alternative for Western companies who are looking to source products or services. And some of China's neighbors are on a roll. 
India, Indonesia, Thailand, and Singapore have the most upbeat consumers in the world right now. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. The consistent story of the American housing market over the past, well, a lot of years has been that we just don't have enough of it in most places. In some places, cities where the population is shrinking, cities like Baltimore, thousands of homes just sit empty, sometimes for decades. And no small part of the problem for those cities is knowing who owns what. And part of the solution might be technology. Marketplace's Amy Scott has been following Baltimore's vacancy crisis for years now. Ebony Thompson remembers vividly the day two years ago when she started a new job as deputy solicitor for the city of Baltimore. That was the day of the press conference that Mayor Scott held following the tragic loss of the three firefighters who courageously were battling the fire at Stricker Street and it caved in on them. The building on Stricker Street was one of more than 15,000 vacant houses in Baltimore at the time. And at that press conference, Mayor Brandon Scott ordered every city agency to take a hard look at its role in the vacancy crisis. I am also tasking them to be innovative and provide ideas for what more their respective agencies can do to reduce the number of vacants in the city. Thompson had an idea. In her previous job, she'd taken a course at MIT on blockchain technology. In simple terms, a blockchain is a shared digital ledger that's immutable, meaning once a block of information is recorded, it can't be changed. For her final class project, she proposed a way to use the technology in real estate transactions. And it was putting deeds on the blockchain so that a municipality could save time and money to combat vacant housing. Now, here she was working for a city battling vacant housing and being asked to innovate. Still, it took some convincing to get officials on board. It was, everybody, why are you talking to us about cryptocurrency? And I'm like, it's not cryptocurrency, it's the technology behind cryptocurrency. It took two years, during which Thompson got promoted to city solicitor. But last month, the city approved a three-year pilot program to record all of the now 13,600 vacant properties in the city on the blockchain. Alice Kennedy is the city's housing commissioner. If we were to just pick any random property here. We can to explain how it'll at. work, she pulls up the city's interactive community development map on her computer and zooms in on a block of row houses, most of them marked with red squares indicating vacancy. So you have one that is 1415 Myrtle. This shows that the last sale date was from 1992. The house has been vacant since at least 2016, when an inspector deemed it unfit for human habitation. 
The city's main strategy for dealing with a house like that would be to acquire it through foreclosure or eminent domain, and then sell to someone who would either fix it up and live in it or sell it to someone else. The first step we do with any type of acquisition process is needing to do a full title examination. To find out who owns the building, are there any unpaid taxes or bankruptcies? Does anyone else have a claim on the property? Those records are spread out across different agencies and courthouses. We are really, like, turning over rocks. The thing is, a title search typically happens every time a property changes hands. And Kennedy says that slows down getting that vacant building occupied. But if all that information were easily accessible on the blockchain in a secure, unchangeable form... We believe that that will then make the next transaction on that property go faster and maybe even have some cost savings associated with it. This is just one piece of a proposed $3 billion plan to address blight in Baltimore. The city's hiring title attorneys to help acquire more properties faster and starting a new bond program to subsidize redevelopment. And Baltimore has made progress. The official number of vacants has fallen 14 percent in the last three years. But you don't have to look far to confront the challenges Baltimore is facing. After we talk, I drive over to check out 1415 Myrtle Avenue in person. It's a brick row house with boarded-up windows that someone had once painted sky blue. It must have been a beautiful house back in the day. I find Charles Duggar doing some work at the house next door. He's a retired teacher who grew up across the street. My grandfather bought 1404 back in 1912, so that's been our family house for 112 years now. Over that time, his family has lived through redlining and other racist policies that have hollowed out historically black neighborhoods. I mean, you you take away people's legacy and culture and you flood with all this negative, and then we wonder, why is it like this? It's going to take more than technology to overcome that history and bring this block back but the city hopes it can at least help speed up the process. In Baltimore, I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. Coming up. For us, the most important thing is to have good, reliable delivery. On-time delivery, always important, regardless of the cargo in question. First, though, oh, sure, why not? Let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials up 224 today, 6 tenths percent, 38,333. NASDAQ lifted 172 points. That's 1.1% there, 15,628. S&P 500 gained 36 points, about three quarters percent, 49 and 27. Salesforce still seems to be getting a bump from the layoffs it announced last Friday. Shares added 2.8 percent today. Microsoft got a bump as well as investors wait for it to announce results tomorrow. Some of them, investors that is, hoping AI revenue is going to boost that company's outlook. Microsoft gained 1.4 percent today. Meanwhile, the company that Microsoft displaced as the world's biggest by market capitalization, Apple, Had a down day. Shares slipped a little over a third of 1%. Bonds 
Well, the yield on the 10-year T-note sits at 4.07%. You're listening to Marketplace. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. We'll get the January jobs report on Friday, as I said up at the top of the program. And one of the things we are going to be looking at is the number of teenagers in the workforce. According to the Department of Labor, over 250,000 more 16 to 19-year-olds are working now than were working before the pandemic. And the share of teenagers who have had or who are looking for a job is the highest it's been since 2009. Abba Butter, I wrote about it for The Washington Post. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Kai. What kinds of jobs are we talking about, first of all, that these teenagers are getting? It's really across the board. A lot of it is in the jobs that you would expect teenagers to have at retail stores, restaurants, movie theaters, that kind of thing. But we are also seeing a push from many states and cities that are creating youth employment programs mm-hmm. and allowing teens a foot in the door for like healthcare jobs or manufacturing, finance, things like that as well. We should point out here that, that the number of teenagers in the workforce has been going down for a while. So this is sort of a noteworthy change in direction. Yeah, the share of teens in the workforce has been steadily declining for a good 45 years. Um, And that's really started to shift after the pandemic. About 37% of teens worked last year at some point, which is Hmm. quite a bit higher than the 34% we saw a decade ago. Hmm. Um, Since you mentioned the pandemic, we should say here uh, that wages for people at the bottom end of the income spectrum, which is what most of these teenagers are, because that's the way it goes being a teenager, um, pandemic after the pandemic and, and, you know, present day, those wages are rising pretty fast. It's, it's not bad to be a teenager looking for a job right now. No, it's really not. We've seen employers around the country raise their starting wages, and overall, teens have seen a 10% increase in pay in the last year, which is nearly double what other people are seeing. Hmm. Make the um, wage and that attractiveness versus education challenge uh, connection for me, right? Because if you can make decent money, maybe school's not that attractive? Yeah, that's that's sort of the tightrope that we're walking here. And a lot of the reason that we had this big drop in teen employment over the last several decades is because there has been more emphasis on graduating high school and going to college. It's become harder to graduate from high school and go to college. And so teens are spending more time devoted to schoolwork and homework and things like that. We don't know how exactly that's playing out right now, but a lot of the teens that I talked to who had recently started working said that, you know, they're coming out of the pandemic being cooped up at home with a year or more sometimes of virtual learning. They're stuck with their parents and they just really wanted to get out. They wanted that financial independence and working, um, you know, even if it's just a shift or two a week was a way to do that. Give me your favorite anecdote from the story because you talked to a bunch of people. I talked to a bunch of people, and I have to say the most surprising thing was talking to all these employers all around the country. And the one thing they kept saying is that 
these teens are great. <laughs> you know, they are so different from the millennials before them. These teens are really excited and they want shifts. Um, and so I thought that, I mean, the first time I heard it, I kind of was like, okay, whatever. As a millennial, I was a little defensive, but I kept hearing it from every single employer. I was just going to say, we're going to get some letters now from millennials. So just send it to the Washington Post. Don't send it to me. <laughs> um, so look, uh, demographics can be interesting and employment trends can can move around. What do you suppose the likelihood is that this trend and these numbers kind of stay where they are or or get better for teenagers? Well, that's a really good question. And the answer is, I don't really know. Um, it's been a very gradual increase in the share of teens that are working. And all of that could change if the labor market sours or if things go south. Um, a large part of this is also that the labor market has been so tight and these mm-hmm. employers have been so desperate for workers that they're willing to work around high schoolers' schedules and they're willing to train them and give them the amount of money that they want, which isn't going to be the case if all of a sudden we see massive layoffs and older workers who are desperately looking for work. Yeah, I was going to let you go, but now I've got one more. Give me the big picture reason why increasing teen employment matters for everybody who's not a teenager. You know, in the last year or two, they've really helped keep the service sector going. Teens are working at restaurants, at movie theaters, at stores, all of those places that have really struggled to find workers. And restaurant owner after restaurant owner told me that if it wasn't for the high schoolers that are working after school or during the summers, like they just would have had to shut down by now. And so they've really kept the economy going in a big way. And they've allowed service employers to keep hiring. Abba Badarai at the Washington Post, writing about teenagers and employment and why we we all ought to be grateful that they're out there. Abba, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Teenager or not, we want you to listen to us wherever you are. So if you miss something on the actual radio, we've got a podcast. Of course we do. Marketplace.org is where you can get that, or you can follow us on the platform of your choice. Remember all those supply chain stories we did at the peak of the pandemic-induced backlog in global shipping? Right. We are kind of back there again. Not as bad, but not great either. The cost of moving a shipping container full of cargo by sea went through the roof. As we all started buying more stuff, the more time we were spending at home. You remember that, right? But last year, by then, prices had come down. They were still higher than they were in the before times, but way down from their pandemic highs. Until... December. The World Container Index, it's from the supply chain advisory firm Drury, has now more than doubled. It is the highest it's been since late 2022, thanks in very large part to problems along two of the world's most important trade routes, the Panama Canal, where drought has limited the number of ships that can pass through, and the Suez Canal, where attacks in the Red Sea by Houthi rebels have limited the number of ships that are willing to pass through. The upshot is that some supply chains are seizing up again, and importers are having to improvise, as Marketplace's Justin Ho reports. When the Panama Canal Authority started limiting the number of ships that could pass through the canal last year, Catherine Reynolds says she shrugged the news off. I'll admit, when I, when I got the first emails about the Panama Canal, I'm like, oh, it doesn't affect me. Reynolds handles imports at Palmetto Tile Distributors. It's based on the East Coast in South Carolina. It gets some of its tiles from vendors in the U.S., but mostly imports from Europe. That means none of its tile has to go through the Panama Canal. At least that's what she thought. 
So the other day I ordered um, some inventory from this particular vendor in California, and it's one of their import goods. And I was told it was back ordered because they're waiting for a container to arrive. That container was coming from Brazil, and it was stuck waiting to get through the Panama Canal. And it just depends on what number, what queue they're in for the for the canal to get through, get to port, then clear customs, and then get to my vendor, and then I'll finally get the goods. On the other side of the world, shippers have been diverting traffic away from the Red Sea and sending it all the way around Africa instead. Pat Whalen, who handles imports for Sahadi Fine Foods in Brooklyn, says he's been getting emails with that bad news. And it's not just delays. What they do is they send out these notices saying that we're going to add X number of dollars to the next movement. In some cases, Whalen says he's had to pay an extra $1,000 per container for imports of goods including Greek olive oil, Lebanese hummus, and tahini. Those goods are coming from countries in the eastern Mediterranean, which means they don't even have to pass through the Red Sea. But Whalen says the big container ships that are loaded with his tahini and olive oil are having to wait around for other goods on those diverted ships. And as a result, that bigger vessel is going to ship with less goods on it. Therefore, it's going to be more costly per container on that ship. Or it's going to try to wait a little bit and have that boat sit idle for a couple of days, waiting for that other stuff to catch up. Even though his shipments are costing him more, Whalen says he's trying to make sure he's well-stocked, given all of these ongoing delays. So we're ordering much more from that area than we would at this time of year to compensate. Other companies are rethinking whether they want to put items on ships to begin with. The main alternative when there's a shipping issue on the water is you put the item in the air. That's Adam Miller, the owner of Revel Bikes, based in Colorado. His company imports bike frames from Asia, and he says those shipping lanes are fine. But Revel also sells a lot of bikes in Europe. And right now, he says shipping bikes over there by air is the best way to avoid the headaches of shipping them by sea. But air freight isn't exactly cheap. We end up spending, you know, about 10 times, uh, if not more, than the cost to, to ship that bike on the ocean. Miller says if the company needs to send a lot of bikes to Europe, it'll probably wait until the situation in the Red Sea settles down. But if a distributor needs just a handful of bikes to put on the sales floor, Miller says the added cost of air freight is worth it just to keep his customers happy. For a company like Revel, we're about five years old right now, so we're a relatively young company in the big scheme of things. So for us, the most important thing is to have good, reliable delivery. Miller says that's a lesson his company learned early in the pandemic, when supply chains around the world were congested. The ones that had products and and were able to ship products to bike shops and to customers were successful. And we were very lucky. We did a very uh, good job with, with delivering products to customers. And now we've sort of set that expectation. Miller says on the plus side, it's ski season in Europe right now. Hope is, once the bike season picks up in the spring, shipping by ocean will ease up again. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. This final note on the way out today, a different slice of the global shipping story Justin was just telling us about. Flexport, which is one of the biggies in supply chain management, is set to lay off something less than 20% of its 2,600-person workforce. Bloomberg has the story. If those layoffs do happen, they come after two cuts last year of 20% apiece. We are buying less stuff, buying more services, hence less shipping. That's what's going on. Our daily production team includes... Andy Corbin, Elizia Hassan, 
Richard Cunningham, Maria Hollenhorst, Sarah Leeson, Sean McHenry, and Sophia Terenzio. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.